Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Bradley. Thank you so much for joining me for this particular podcast. And my guest today is someone who's got a, a long and varied uh, career and is extremely prominent, both in the media and in, as an author and as a, and I guess, an activist as well. Jane Caro has decided to put a hand up and stand for the Senate for the Reason Party. But we're not just talking to her about that. She's also got a new book out called The Mother, which is her first novel for adults, and it deals with some contentious issues. So rather than me blather on, I best get Jane on the call now. Jane, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Uh, uh, this will be a whole heap of fun. It's actually a privilege to have a chat with you. Now, before we look at issues of substance, mm. uh, especially the new book you've got out there, uh, what's your elevator pitch? What, what, what would your career look like at the back of a, a, a post-it note for somebody who's never met you before? <laughs> it looked like a rather odd and peripatetic career, I think, but there is one thing that holds it together, and that is um, a skill with words and a desire to use them to connect with people. And I'll use them in any medium. So I uh, do a lot of professional speaking. I write books. I write articles. I used to write ads. I will um, appear in the media. I've made documentaries. I just use words um, and I try to use them as skillfully as I can to draw attention to the things I care about and to make connections with other people and all of my career really has been about that. Your career started in advertising? It did. And then in, in, from advertising you moved to? Well, I, I sort of moved, I, I slowly left, left advertising because it paid well and so it was hard to uh, let go of it completely. But I moved into writing articles and becoming uh, more of a, a long-form writer and also writing books. And then I uh, did a lot of media work and that then led to a lot of professional speaking and emceeing and panel facilitation. And um, so it's sort of grown like topsy. I mean, I had a, uh, I, I basically created a new career at the age of 50. Uh, not very common for women. So I've been incredibly fortunate. I turned 50 last year, so I figure that's probably, that probably means things might look up from here, right? <laughs> well, you're a man, so it's probably easier for you. But for women, it's very hard once they get to um, their early 50s. There's a lot of statistics about how many of them leave the workforce at that time and how hard it is for them to get back in. We don't have a particularly positive image of older women. We, um, we're pretty sneery and um, we, we ignore, disrespect them a lot. Um, they're almost an embarrassment. Um, and one of my passions is, in fact, um, making sure that older women do get heard, do get seen, and that their very real issues, particularly of falling into poverty, are taken seriously. The, uh, one thing you mentioned there is particularly interesting. Um, I, in watching the media, as I do closely because of the work I do, mm. um, it marvels me, uh, and it somewhat distresses me as well, is how many experienced female journalists and presenters who reach a certain age are no longer seen. 
they just disappear. And yes, and it's often because of this bias, uh, the fact that it's often guys who are deciding who gets to be in front of the camera, whose story gets uh, published. And um, I, I'm afraid, I don't know if it's conscious or unconscious, but often they're not particularly, they don't, they're not comfortable around older women. Um, and so, yeah, and they think audiences aren't comfortable around, around them. What they forget, of course, is particularly for the ABC, particularly for books, uh, particularly for an awful lot of um, streaming services, TV, events, all that sort of thing, the majority of the bloody audience are older women. I mean, I wrote a book about older women called Accidental Feminists. It sold like hotcakes. What a surprise. There are hardly any books about older women. Of course they want to read about themselves and their experience. The mother is about an older woman as well. That's already doing uh, extremely well. There's an audience out there and most people have forgotten about it, but it's a big one and it's an intelligent one and it really wants to be engaged and involved and it's angry because it's ignored. The other thing that puzzles me, um, and having some experience in the corporate space, uh, in corporate governance, etc., um, is that when you don't involve older people per se and older women who have got a varied and detailed experience in certain areas, and I'm thinking now of people who've reported on business and politics for donkey's years. Yep. You lose corporate memory. Of course. How do you teach young people when you don't have the corporate memory in the building? I don't know, but it may have something to do with the fact that there's so, such a lot of um, ignorance at the moment, such a, a, a sort of sliding backwards in many parts of the media. Um, it's sloppier than it used to be. Uh, it's going for the quick... Um, flashy headline in ways that I don't think some of the publications used to do. And perhaps that's part of it. I don't know. It's a prejudice. It's a bias. All prejudices and biases are stupid and wrong and they harm the people who hold the prejudice as much as they harm the people who are the subject of that prejudice because we miss out as well as the person who is being excluded because of completely extraneous reasons like their age, the colour of their skin, their sexual orientation, their gender or whatever. I mean, this is all, that's all just nonsensical um, bias and prejudice, and it holds us all back. Um, but one of the most in, in, intransigent is actually ageism, and it's one of the least recognised, and it's the absolute bedrock stupidest because if we're lucky, we'll all get old faster than you ever dreamt possible. So every time you discriminate against an older person, you're shooting your future self in the foot. It's bedrock dumb stuff. But, geez, we do it a lot. Yeah, and... Um... When we do it, we lose a body of experience that, you know, time and space and history yeah. goes, Irreplaceable. Out the, goes out the window. You can't, re, you can't replace that. No, it's just, it, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm 65 in June, and what I find as I get older is I become increasingly impatient with stupidity. <laughs> I had more tolerance for it when I was young. Because I thought, oh, you know, we'll get wiser. No, no, it goes on, stupidity. It's extraordinary. And there seems to be an absolute epidemic of it at the moment, rampant stupidity. Um, and it causes enormous harm. We'll get back to that, no doubt, when we talk about your Senate run. But mm. before I forget, you probably 
on a throttle meet. We don't turn to your book. <laughs> yes. The Mother, as I said earlier, is your first adult novel. Yeah. Um, and the thing that grabs you by the throat is the, the two-line blurb. She would die for her daughter, but could she kill for her? Without spoiling the book, for those <laughs> who are going to read it, what are the themes that you've got at the core of this? There are a lot of interwoven themes, but basically the, the, the centre of it is about coercive control in a relationship, observed from outside, and how that kind of control works not just on the person who is in the relationship and being directly controlled, but also how all that person's family and friends and outer circle are also in a way controlled by the uh, arch manipulator for whom power over others appears to be a matter of life and death, death for them. They, they, they have to. Um, control others' behaviour and uh, hold them. Uh, it's a it's a it's a weird obsessive thing that a must can only come out of a deep insecurity, I suppose. But I wanted to look at that and look at because it can happen to anyone. I set the book deliberately in a very middle class um, milieu, not a not not a marginalised community at all, the exact opposite, because I wanted to show that this is something that can happen to anyone. And really it is also about how our society, because of its still fairly rigid ideas about gender, actually grooms men and women from childhood, women to be vulnerable to being manipulated and men to being vulnerable to allowing the darkest side of their nature full reign. Not all men, of course, and not all women, but if the predisposition is there, we have a society that almost tacitly encourages that through our very narrow, rigid views of masculinity and our narrow, rigid views of femininity and also our bizarre ideas about what love is. Um, and we use... We use terms that reveal our bizarre um, idea of love. Swept off her feet. You do not want to be swept off your feet. You are incredibly vulnerable if your feet are not on the ground and someone is holding you up. You are their creature. You belong to them. They can. You're a puppet, really, if you're swept off your feet. The chase. That's an appalling thing to call it. The chase, um, as if the woman is prey and the would-be suitor predator. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's all this kind of stuff that I develop in the book and I've realised, always I realise what I'm writing about after I've finished, that in fact I always write about the same thing in my trilogy of young adult novels about Elizabeth Tudor. I wrote about a woman who held on to her own power in a period of time where that was virtually impossible for women. Of course, the fact that she was a princess helped um, and then a queen. But in this book I'm writing about a woman who takes back the power and as coercive control is about total power and domination over another human being, that 
is a deeply subversive act and in the book has to be done in an extreme fashion. When we write, something inspires us. Um, yeah. What, what if any, what, what are the things that started to sort of collude and mix in the cauldron of your brain as you were pulling this together? Where did, where did some of the inspiration come from? Well, it, the idea came to me because I saw, you know, watching the news stories and things about a, one of those horrendous murder-suicides of wife and children that uh, fill our headlines far too often. And just feeling appalled, as we all are when we see those things. And then I saw a photograph of um, the young woman and her children in, that were involved, and there was an older woman with her, not her mother, I think possibly her grandmother, and um, the woman, older woman's face was pixelated out, and I looked at it and I just thought, how wondered how that poor woman would be feeling now, the, the grief she'd be feeling, the anger. And... Um, then I thought, you know, what if that was my daughter? Because I've got two daughters, two grandchildren, you know, what if that was my daughter who was married to someone who we were all afraid might do something like that? What would I do? And then I thought, well, I know what I'd want to do. And that was the beginning of the genesis of the idea. And then I just, like I, you, you said, it, it is an instinctive thing writing fiction much more than a, a kind of intellectual exercise. It insisted that I write it and COVID lockdowns gave me the, <laughs> no excuse not to. So um, I began to write it and I was very, I was determined to get it right, to make it as real and believable as possible. But I, And one of the things I discovered as I did the research is because sometimes I'd hesitate and think, oh, this is too extreme, this, this can't, this can't. It's always happened. It's always happened. You know, it's quite sobering to realise just how much cruelty and misery is actually out there in seemingly ordinary houses between seemingly ordinary people. Indeed, there was some research that came out only last week and when it came out I thought, well, that's good, um, which said that they analysed all the perpetrators of those kinds of horror homicides over the last, I don't know, how many years and uh, tried to um, work out common sort of predictors, what might predict that someone would do something, and they said that 33% of the uh, people who would go on to murder their wife and possibly children were perfectly normal, ordinary uh, men who um, had never been in the police, trouble with the police before, never shown any tendency to violence, and everybody, nobody had a clue it was coming, and they all thought they were a good bloke and they operated very well in the professional world. So this monster myth was another thing I wanted to do away with, that it's, the men who do this are monsters, they're not. It's interesting because about like almost a month ago now I spoke to Amy Bromikis. Mm about her, her uh, book on reckoning. And we spoke about that very same thing. The fact is that, you know, we, we, um, we need to get beyond the notion of the, the sort of fictional caricature of a monster. 
and understand that it's something psychological, it's something that these guys uh, do or something clicks in that causes the most terrible of abominations to occur, whatever it happens to be. Yep. Now, from the mother, uh, and you're in the middle of the book tour. And then I am. All of, and all of a sudden, there's an announcement that you're running for the Senate. <laughs> yeah. For the Reason Party. Yeah. One part of me wants to ask you, why on earth would you want, would you go down the, that road of a crazy undertaking? Yep. What... Um, it, the time, and I've read some of the material written about this, mm. you've said the time is kind of right. You've, uh, and one of the phrases that the independents and indeed yourself have used is that this is the most consequential election mm. yeah. for a very long time. Mm. When you say it's the most consequential, why is that so? Because we've got to tackle some of the wicked problems that we're facing. And we keep electing governments that don't believe in government. And we can't operate anymore with a vacuum at the top. And we have been operating for a long time with a vacuum at the top, with governments that desperately want to avoid doing their job or taking responsibility, who want to outsource everything, privatise everything, um, push everything back onto the consumer, the taxpayer, the whoever it is, the person who's suffering or is unfortunate or needs help. And this is the absolute wrong approach when we're looking at um, an existential crisis like, um, as the IPCC report recently said, is, you know, getting to absolutely emergency, emergency levels. We cannot operate okay. with um, a leadership vacuum and get things done. Uh, we have... Uh, parts of our community who have basically taken complete leave of facts. They have just decided that they don't accept any fact that doesn't fit their particular worldview at all um, and who are starting to believe quite crazy, crazy nonsense and who are beginning to take to the streets and we've seen recently in Canada and in New Zealand uh, it can turn to quite violent um, behaviour and it is irrational I mean the, what they're demonstrating they're not demonstrating like the moratoriums in the 70s against the war or it's not a women's liberation march it's not Black Lives Matter it's not it's we hate everybody freedom you know non, and it's a disparate group of demands that make no sense this is terrifying uh, we've got quasi-fascism in um well, the Republican Party in America, which also seems to have decided that facts and truth are an inconvenient uh, barrier to their basically authoritarian uh, desire to, I don't know, institute some sort of right-wing theocracy in the US. Uh, we have Putin, who some of these crazies support for even though they, they think of themselves as all about freedom, they support an absolute dictator um, because they're not about freedom at all. They're about uh, the opposite, in fact. Um, 
Are you, you're not expecting it to be consistent, Jane, are you? No, I'm not. Okay. But I do like to point out the inconsistencies. Um, so, yes, it feels, as somebody said to me uh, on the weekend, everything feels very fragile at the moment. I mean, we've got the floods, you know, and the pandemic. It's been disaster after disaster after disaster. And every time our leaders have been found wanting, they, don't, they won't hold hoses, they won't carry sandbags, they won't make decisions, they won't release money to help people. You know, surely we have to change direction. And if we don't change direction now, how bad is this going to get? Is democracy going to survive? Will we have kind of toxic democracies um, characterised by um, kleptocracy and corruption and uh, a kind of lip service um, to the ideals of a democracy or, or can we save it? We can only save it if we reinstall re- inst- trust because democracy has to survive because people trust it and believe that it is in the end, although it will stumble and fall and make mistakes, that it is of the people, by the people, for the people. As soon as it stops being that, then trust disappears and then it can't operate properly and then things go horribly wrong. So I guess I just felt, and I'm just one person, I can't, (laughs) I know perfectly well, I can't fix any of those things all by myself, but it just seemed to me that if you had some currency, now is the time to spend it. Now is the time to uh, try to get into office so that you could have some uh, impact on the direction that this country's going and hopefully if more people who feel strongly about the sort of things that I do also stand for office, and particularly women, it's good to see women doing it, then we can, we can get together and actually make the world a better place for everyone rather than a worse place for everyone, even though a few may be deluded enough to think that they can escape the consequences. They won't be able to. You're unlike some of the others who are running as independents. Um, You've linked up with the Reason Party. Yeah. Well, a couple of reasons. The first is they asked me. Okay. And, and you know, that's pretty straightforward. But I I thought about standing for a seat in 2019 when um, I was in discussions with the Voices of Warringah, but I was pretty sure that I wasn't the right person. Uh, where I live in Sydney, I think I'm a bit too... Um, well, in some areas, radical. Funnily enough, the area that it's probably most controversial is my support for public education. <laughs> it's bizarre that that's about the most radical position you can take in today's Australia, but turns out it is. Um, and so I thought to myself, a House of Reps seat is not right for me. But the Senate, I think, although I know it's a very big mountain to climb and a very hard ask, particularly in New South Wales, I actually thought that I had a better chance and would be a better representative of a whole state and a group of people with certain beliefs and attitudes in a state. Um, And they asked me, I looked into them quite carefully and I thought, yes, I like like what they stand for. I like their emphasis on evidence-based 
uh, policy making that is about minimising harm, reducing suffering, enhancing people's lives and making decisions um, that are guided by facts and uh, peer-reviewed evidence and not by ideology or wishful thinking or some sort of theocratic impulse. I really liked that and I thought that's what we need. Um, and I've always admired Fiona Patton and I like her as a person and if you're going to work with people, it's good to like them. So um, it seemed like uh, a real opportunity and I also knew, knew that if you are going for the Senate, um, to be part of a party means that a registered political party with the right number of members and reason ticked all those boxes, you will automatically be above the line on the voting ticket. And that matters in terms of having any kind of real chance. So a lot of um, practical and also, um, you know, um, views of the world perspectives uh, went into my decision. Now, see, Parliament is, um, can be a bit of a sewer when it comes to debate. And yeah. uh, And I've asked this question of, of uh, George Steele and Joe Dyer in, in the past mm. week. Yep. Um, as well as others I've spoken to, mm. Kate Ellis included. The, if you were to be elected, um, you walk in there with a significant amount of life experience. Yeah. Um, how would you hope to change? But what what would you like to change about the culture of that place? Be nice to see it being more civil, uh, more generous-hearted, um, and spirited. Uh, to be about trying to find the best solution for the country rather than win some sort of point-scoring political game against the other side. And I think that's why independents and representatives of small parties actually are important because they can avoid that stuff because it's not really relevant to them. Um, and I think that that's something that the average voter is desperate for. In fact, when I announced my candidacy, it was really interesting watching the responses coming in on social media, phone calls, emails, you know, lots of people responded. Um, the tone of the responses, now obviously I'm sure there were people who threw their hands up in horror, not surprised about that, but um, for those who didn't, and they were the ones who approached me, which is good, um, the tone was relief. And basically what was coming out, coming back to me was, oh, thank God, somebody I actually want to vote for. And I think that's one of the things that the independents are actually tapping into um, because I think we've felt for a long time, members of the public, as almost observers of a political game that goes on up there, which is all about the agendas of the people in that place, and we've been pretty much ignored. And so the, I hope that the independents can have some influence in changing that in reminding politicians of all kinds that our duty is to the people who elected us and the good of the country in which we live and the world in which that country is situated, not to further an ideology or help our big donors or make sure we get a well-paid job at the end of our political career. That or lay down some sort of um, offering to our God. None of those things are the central purpose 
of being elected to a parliament. And I think the central purpose of being elected to a parliament has been lost in all of that and the public are well aware of it. Um, so, yes, I think that's what the independents hope to do. Now, I'm not expecting anybody to be nice to me. There will be some people who are nice to me. If I got in, I'm sure uh, many of the women in that place, I think, have strong alliances. They would need to. Um, but I'm not a young, naive girl. I have been around. Um, after all, I spent 35 years being the often the only woman in the creative department in big advertising agencies in the 80s and 90s, the Mad Men era. Um, and uh, as I sometimes say to trolls on Twitter, look, darling, I've been bullied by the wittiest men in Australia. Your uh, nonsense holds little fears for me. And I think I have learned how to deal with bullying. Twitter's been a really good um, kind of learning curve as well. I've, I've understood what bullying is. And bullying is a form, interestingly enough, takes us back to our discussion of the mother and coercive control. Bullies want to control the emotional reaction of the person they're bullying. So they will send you something where they want you to feel humiliated or frightened or defensive or angry or shocked or hurt, right? They want to see that emotion in you. Now, none of us like, are immune. They're like an arsonist, really. Yes, they're like an arsonist. They want to light a, a negative flame inside the person they're bullying. Mm -hmm. Now, none of us are immune to feeling those emotions if someone's being really horrible to you and abusive, but you can control how you react and you never show the bully the emotion they're trying to evoke. You hold on to your own power and you might feel that emotion, but not a bit of it appears. Mm -hmm. Then you're no fun. They don't want to bully you that much because you don't react the way and you... I read a wonderful book. Gosh, I'm sure it's out of print. It's very old now, but it's called An Evil Cradling. I don't know if you ever read it, but it was by Brian Keenan, who was an Irish English teacher. He was Irish and he taught English in Lebanon during all the troubles in the 80s and 90s. And he was one of the hostages that was held by, um, I can't remember who the uh, terrorist group were, but he was held for years and years and years with a whole lot of other um, hostages. Yeah. And in this book, he describes how he realised really quickly that the people who got beaten were the people who showed fear. And he said, so whenever one of my captors would come into the room where I was being held, even though I would feel fear, I refused to show it so that the only fear in the room would belong to them. And so when you refuse to show the humiliation or the hurt or the whatever it is they want you to show, the only humiliation, the only hurt in the interaction belongs to them. That defeats the purpose. We talked earlier about civility and improving culture and thinking about getting an outcome. Mm. One of the things I've observed... Uh, particularly in the discourse about uh, in and around the Jenkins report, yeah, um, was um, 
and I understand why this happens when when you know people see see individuals uh, getting involved in defending certain cultures for whatever mm. reason. Um, how do we get beyond the conversation where people sort of litter Twitter and Facebook with terms like crumb maiden and then other things? How do we get woke that? snowflake? Oh well, some of that, yeah. Turf. All of that stuff. Mm. How do we get beyond that? Because it, 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 irrespective of the justification somebody might apply to using a term, not particularly by what term it is, mm. the, the conclusion I come to, and please correct me if you think I'm wrong, mm. is that, that that still perpetuates a polarisation. It doesn't mm. promote consensus. I think that's true, but you've got to remember that feminism is not about promoting consensus. Feminism is a revolutionary movement that seeks to redistribute power more equally. Nobody gives up power without a fight, and sometimes you have to fight back. So playing nice and seeking consensus, women have done that for thousands of years. It's got them precisely nowhere, okay. nowhere. So being nice, then being nice days are over. Um, that doesn't mean we have to be horrible, but it may mean we won't placate. That, that, it may that's mean that's the distinction. It's not you know, yeah. it's not sitting down and sort of taking it, but it's the extent to which abuse, for want of a better word, um, takes the cause further. Well, you, but in, but in a way, that's what causes alike. They're messy. Yeah. They're made up of messy, flawed human beings. Feminism, there's no organisation. There's no boss. There's no set of rules. There's no club you can join. There's no dogma. There's no book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no way you can be kicked out of the club. Some people try to do that, but that's just stupid. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a point of view. It's a perspective. And it's a whole of gender and really a whole of population movement in the end. So, yes, some people are going to do feminism badly. They're going to be shit at it. Um, that's okay. Uh, as long as they're trying to do feminism, I'm happy with that. I refuse to condemn people for losing their temper sometimes, for saying things they shouldn't. Guilty, Your Honour. You know, I've, I've done that when I shouldn't have and regretted it later. And there's no reason why women or people of colour or LGBTQI people, have to behave well before they're allowed to have equal rights. Never noticed white, straight, private school-educated men behaving particularly well at all throughout history. And they've had more than equal rights from year dot. It's like when people talk to, to me about, not as, they don't do it as much anymore, which is a sign of some progress, but when women were agitating, and we still are about equal numbers in boardrooms and leadership positions and things like that and why quotas are a perfectly reasonable idea. Um, people say, well, give me the business case. And my argument has always been, well, can you show me the business case that says that men should have all the top jobs for 2,000 years? Is there a business case somewhere that argues that? Because if there isn't, why the hell do we have to make one? Why do we have to be better than you yeah. or earn our place when you never did? Why do we have to be well-behaved before we're entitled to get half of what is available? 
We don't. We can be shit. We can be lousy. We can be flatulent. We can be rude. We can be irrational, just like men are, and still be entitled to equal rights. So, yes, sometimes some feminists call other people names. I think sometimes it's, I understand venting with your girlfriends around the dinner table. Oh, my God, I've done that. I try to avoid it on Twitter. I don't always succeed, but I try to avoid it. I try never to play the person, always the issue, and never the individual. I, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find me actually abusing an individual. Maybe Scott Morrison, maybe that has happened. Um, but it's not something I do often because I don't really approve of it. I don't always live up to my own high standards. But I do, and I do hate the lateral damage that happens in all movements. But I also understand why it happens. People are fighting hard all the time. And most of them, they, you know, they put a lot of energy and effort. Feminism is enormously exhausting. <laughs> As Laura Lissy said, there's no glass ceiling. There's just a thick layer of men. And you can't push it against them. It's hard work. And sometimes you get tired and you get ratty and you blah, blah. And lateral damage is easier. You can exert your power more safely on other people who are in a subordinate culture than doing it against the dominant culture. And so often in frustration, people who are trying very hard to change the way power is distributed will fight one another for that reason. It's a waste of time, but it's a, it's a and it can be very damaging and hurtful to the person who's being attacked but at the same time, I understand where it comes from. And I think it's an inevitable result of being in a subordinate culture. It's safer to take your anger out on someone with equal or lesser power than the other way around. And I try to understand rather than condemn. I try not to judge why people whose motives and intents are good sometimes do bad things. And I refuse to have a higher standard for women or people of colour or LGBTQI people than I have for men. And given the standard of men's behaviour at the moment, that bar is low. We've spoken about a whole range of things and I really appreciate your time this afternoon. That's okay. What, what are the... Go back to your... The, the run to Parliament, and I think this is a thing that is illuminating. Uh, you mentioned public education as an issue of concern. Yeah. Um, absence of governance or, or active, decisive governance on issues that matter. Mm -hmm. What are the other things that are of concern to you that you'd like to pursue if you get in, are there, is there a checklist in the back of your mind? Of there are all sorts of, yes, things like I, I think the cashless uh, debit card is a pernicious and cruel and punitive uh, thing to impose on um, people who are struggling with poverty. I just detest it. It is, in fact, a form of coercive control and many of the women currently um, forced to be on that card in the trial sites where it is currently running 
are there are um, in poverty because they've escaped domestic violence and coercive control. And what happens when they do, they find themselves put on the cashless debit card, which basically is coercive control by the government. I think that is an appalling thing. Um, there are so many issues that illustrate our, well, the current uh, government philosophy about those who are less fortunate uh, in their they they and, and it is a kind it is a it, it is without it is a pitiless philosophy, and it is also infantile. It basically says some people work hard and therefore they deserve. Oh, and that's me, of course. I'm one of those people. Self congratulatory as well. Smug. It's the most. I I just despise it. I just I think prosperity well, it, theology. It, it, it's the um, well if you. If you have a go, you'll get a go type phrase. Bullshit, yeah. I've never seen some people having a go as hard as some of the women I know who are on their beam end in their 50s, 60s and 70s and facing homelessness. They'll literally do anything, but they can't get to do anything. And every time they do get to do something, Centrelik comes riding down and takes away their pension because they actually got a chance. But it's only a one-off chance. And then, I mean, it's just appalling. So I'm very exercised by the way we treat the most marginalised and the most vulnerable in our community. Inclusivity has always been a bedrock value of mine. I basically believe that human beings are much more the same than we're different. And therefore, we should emphasise our similarities instead of going around policing our differences all the time and congratulating ourselves if we're amongst the privileged and condemning those who were not, I mean, the Victorians were more compassionate than we are. They had the deserving and the undeserving poor. We have the undeserving poor and the deserving rich. I mean, it's it's just, it boggles my mind, frankly, and um, it's one of the things that really exercises me. And if you look at all the things that I'm concerned about, they all come from that basic bedrock belief that we should offer a helping hand to those who um fall through the cracks and that any one of us could be that person who falls through the cracks. Many of the women I know who were prosperous and often some of them were my advertising colleagues who are now living on the smell of an oily rag and in real fear of losing their homes and things like that, they never thought they'd end up where they've ended up. But in the research for Accidental Feminist, I found just how our society has been deliberately, deliberately engineered to punish women who leave marriages, even if they leave an abusive and violent marriage where we tell them, you should leave. Why didn't she just leave? How come she didn't leave? That woman should leave. Poor lifestyle choice. You didn't leave. Oh, if you leave, we're going to give you nowhere to go. We're going to put you on a cashless debit card. We're going to punish you over and over for leaving. So it's a, it's a form of gender-wide gaslighting. And then there's um, also the issue of superannuation as well, oh. Jane, which is another major... Huge issue. And we don't care. No one's no one's caring. I'm almost the only voice raised about older women. I mean, there are some others, but there are a handful of us with a real uh, platform. There are a lot of older women with smaller platforms battling away very hard to get attention paid. But I am astonished that it doesn't come up as an election issue. I am pleased to see that the Labor Party have said that they will uh, get rid of the cashless debit card. I think that is hugely important. We have to stop punishing people 
because they have fallen on hard times. And I feel particularly strongly about it for women because one of the reasons that they've fallen hard times, one of the reasons they don't have any super, one of the reasons they don't have a home is because all through their life they did what they were told. They put caring for others ahead of their right to earn an income. And that's why they've ended up with nothing when they're old. And what's their reward for that? The very real possibility of spending their old age living out of their car. What kind of a society are we? What kind of a society do these neoliberals want and have created? We have to change this. Do we want to see a generation of grandmothers begging on street corners? Really? Will we feel comfortable with that? If that happens, we will have to build gated communities and we'll have armed personal, like a part of post-apartheid South Africa. The more unequal a society, the greater the rates of violence and crime. Is that what we want? Creating greater equality, redistributing power and resources more equitably makes us all safer. It benefits us all. We know all this. There's no political will to do anything about it. And fear that I, if you get something, I might lose something has been ramped up so that recent, you know, in the last week, a Victorian government, to their very great credit, was uh, had a policy put forward to put a 1.75% tax on property developers uh, to go towards social housing. Such was the outcry of vested interests that they've had to drop the policy. Those vested interests should hang their head in shame. I've been talking to Jane Caro, Senate candidate, author, commentator, speaker, and any number of other things that you get a name. <laughs> Jane, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for asking me to join you and uh, have this very interesting conversation. It's been great. Don't be a stranger. I'd love to do it again. Anytime. Thank you.